listening to Sarah Archer in episode 143 of the Speaking Club podcast. My printer started misbehaving the other day, so I called up the local repair shop. And I spoke to this really nice guy who told me it probably just needed a clean. He said they charged me 40 quid to do it, but I might be better off reading the manual and having a go myself. I was really surprised by this and I said, I bet your boss wouldn't be happy with you telling me that. He said, actually it's her idea. We usually make more money on repairs if we let people try and fix it themselves first. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey, hey! Thanks to Quickstone Capital Solutions for that joke. Well... There is a lot going on in the world at the moment. So thanks for taking the time to join me here. In the UK, we've gone into our second lockdown and it's likely that we'll be using digital solutions to keep connecting with other people in business for quite some time. But however we do it, the importance of building and nurturing business relationships will never diminish. Whatever way you look at it, Business comes down to relationships. People do business with people, not companies. And that's why I've brought Peter Beaumont onto the show. Peter has led the marketing teams for some of the most iconic global brands in a career spanning over 80 countries. And in that time he was with those companies, he figured out the secret to creating and managing relationships. And now he speaks and consults with other companies using his six-step process to help them develop more powerful connections and take things to the next level. Being able to take a more strategic, intentional and measured approach to developing relationships will benefit you whether you have a multi-million pound company or you're an online entrepreneur, coach, author, or expert looking to grow your network, audience, and sales. So it's going to be a good one. But before we switch over to the interview, I just wanted to let you know about something exciting. We've had a number of people through my Snackable Story Challenge since it launched, and we've been getting their feedback. After doing this, we've made some changes to improve the experience and make it even easier for you to get results. One of the big changes is that I'll be doing a live coaching element throughout the challenge and it will be running a number of times per year rather than all the time and it's over five days not seven. So if you want to be able to use your own stories with more power and confidence to increase the engagement and connection with your audience then I'd invite you to join us in the next challenge which is starting very soon. And you can find out more and sign up for your space at saraharcher.co.uk slash challenge. I must just say before we head over to the interview that I might sound like I'm in a church. I'm not in a church. I'm actually in a very large meeting room. So apologies for that, that sound, but hopefully it won't spoil your enjoyment of the interview, which we're going to switch over to now. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Peter Beaumont. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I love that little cheer. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. I've just put things into context. Here. Peter has a, has an English accent, but he's actually yes. in mm. America. And I'm sure we're going to cover off how that happened at some point during the interview. But we're here today to talk about relationships right. primarily. And I wanted to ask you, Peter... What was the problem that you saw or experienced in your career, or maybe it wasn't in your career, maybe it was something else, that led you to do what you do today? Ah, it'll involve travel, because most of my life is will unfold here as involved travel. But the reason I ended up looking at relationships and why they mattered is I spent roughly 16 years on working on the McDonald's business, uh, the, yeah, the restaurant business, uh, with, with Coca-Cola and also with an agency. And when you work exclusively with one client, 
you understand how little you do know really about how to build and maintain relationships. And that was where I gravitated, I think, to understanding what I call strategic relationships rather than transactional relationships. So if that answers the question, that's really what kind of got me going on the path that ended up writing a book about it. Yeah. So was there a defining incident there or a sort of series of things that sort of made you say, this is not the way things are or the way things, the the sort of Hmm. traditional way we handle things is not working? Was there something that triggered you? Yes. A lot of people say, good question, because they're either playing for time or they know they can answer it, right? (laughs) So, but that is a good question because uh, there's a couple of layers to it, but I'll give you the first layer, which was we were trying to get into Minute Maid Orange Juice is very famous in the States. Uh, If you travel, you know that but not really in Europe, uh, or not so much. It's got, it's got more, more known now. One of my biggest countries, I looked after about 30 countries when I worked for the Coca-Cola company for the McDonald's business, and I had a team based in Vienna. And you probably hear more about them as we this thing unfolds. But one of the things, our challenges was we were trying to take uh, the existing orange juice, which they had out, and put Minute Maid orange juice in. And so we were talking to the guy that we normally talk, spoke to who did all the supply chain buying around Coke. And so we were whining and dining and taking him out to lunch and taking him through why he should do it. And, and we weren't getting anywhere. And we didn't understand why, because we were at a relatively good price. Uh, the, the product's brilliant. Um, we could get it easily into Germany through uh, Cargill's, which Cargill was one of their suppliers. So everything operationally was fine. The price was fine. But why weren't we getting anywhere? And we suddenly discovered when we sat down to analyze it that we may be speaking to the wrong person. Now, this... This, by the way, happens a lot, right? And we just don't know it and we write it off to... But we discovered through the back door that we were actually talking to the wrong person. And so we started mapping, actually sitting down, and I remember it very clearly, over a couple of uh, Munich beers, sitting down on the tablecloth, which was, you know, was paper, mapping the relation, who we actually spoke to, and, and we realised we had a gap here. We weren't speaking to the right person. And that was probably a light went on for me going, well, God, that's happening with this. How often is this happening in my other 29 countries? And how do I know whether we've got the right relationships? And so when I fly in and see the account manager who looks after McDonald's for Slovenia or Slovakia or India, how do I know he's got the right relationships and he's speaking to the right people? As I said, there's one layer and then there's a second layer and I could go even deeper. But that's really what started me on the do we really know what we're doing with relationships and how are we evaluating them? And are we reaching the right people? Cool. So I guess that leads me on to, in your opinion, and I guess that's an example of where it wasn't, but are all relationships equal in business in your experience? No, because um, some will be uh, much more important to you than others. Now, should you treat everybody equally? Absolutely. Should you <laughs> should you pretend that somebody is more important than another? Probably not a good idea, especially if the other person's around. So, so, uh, but but to answer your question seriously, there are obviously more important relationships within a client or customer than there are others, and those are normally obviously the decision makers. But they can also be people who say no rather than yes. Because there's, the, and what we tend to do is deal with the people we know that say yes. We forget about those people in the back who sit in the meeting and go, oh, I'm not so sure about this. Maybe we shouldn't have them, you know. And what's their game and what's their agenda and why would they not want to agree? And we forget to even think about that. So, yeah. so is that is that sort of targeting influencers that have yeah. some way, yes, you know, rather than the actual decision makers? So the ear of the king rather than the king, if that makes sense. You know, it's, it's well put. So um, here's what we what I've practiced and start doing, we have four categories of relationships. Categories, roles, I should say, perhaps better. One is a user, somebody who really influences the use of your product or service. So example, Coca-Cola, this guy that we were talking to definitely had an influence on whether what packages we went into, where we would distribute all the rest of it. Somebody will be a, then there's a gatekeeper. And that, that's the person who says no. You can't say yes to anything, but can say no. So that may be somebody who's been reached by Pepsi through the back door, as an example, to carry on with McDonald's. And the price is even lower. And they perhaps have got a hidden agenda to get Pepsi in because they can prove that they've saved the company millions of dollars, right? So they're saying no, whereas the other guy is saying yes. So you've got to un- unearth these gatekeepers and say no. The third 
role is, well, there's four altogether, but the third one would be a coach. Very rare to find, but they understand where the win-win is for both sides of the equation, if that makes sense. So they've normally been with the company quite a long time and they understand what a win-win is. Then the fourth role would be something like um, budget. So if somebody you control, it's it's sometimes called the economic buyer in some terms, but it's the person who has decides on whether they're going to spend that money or not and whether it will deliver, or the other way around, whether it's going to deliver more profit than perhaps any existing product, service or idea does. So, so that's, someone who has the purse strings and looking at either from, a, from an ROI perspective or a cost perspective. Yeah, brilliant. Exactly. Absolutely. Could be both sides of the equation. Yeah, is it going to help our cash flow? Is it going to reduce our cash flow? Is it going to help in our long-term revenue or profits? And by the way, at the end of the day, no companies don't make decisions. People do. Yes. Sometimes we look at it as a company decision. It's never a company decision. Yeah. You know, it's always down to people at the end of the day. And we, sometimes we forget that. And that's why the relationships are so, are so important. So how easy is it for us to be able to identify the people in those roles? Yeah. If we're approaching a company cold, is it, is it more for people who are already having a working relationship B2B or, or even, I guess, B2C, but um, B2B, then we sort of work things out? Or is there a way to look at it up front and try and decipher who those people in those roles are? The latter. So I, I think um, I'll go back to uh, what I said earlier about mapping. When we had this particular issue and we started mapping it on a tablecloth, fortunately paper, and it wasn't marked and we could take it with us, by the way. It was really, really funny to the restaurant guy can we just tear this up, take it with us? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, he had enough beers, so and a good tip. So <laughs> we, you're good. So um, when we started doing that, it was very rud- rudimentary, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> it's not. It wasn't exactly an Excel spreadsheet, but that's where we took it to. So we took it back to the office and said, well, how can we, because there were two axes, an X and a Y axis, had the, the, the people that we were talking to down the Y axis, which goes down the left-hand side. And then across the top, we had the people that, in our organization. And so the set where the cells met would be that's the person that you contacted in, in the company. And so then we started thinking, well, look, you know, now we've got the cells lined up. How do we evaluate how good our relationships are? So we came up with a color coding system, which is traffic lights, really. You know, green's really good, uh, yellow's kind of iffy, and red's weak. Um, but you've got to define what a weak or a strong relationship is, you know, because how long is a piece of string, right? So we came up with our own classification, which was, I believe, strong at the time. And depending on the companies I've been working with, that classification is adjusted because it depends what their sales cycle is, how often they see the customers. So the one we came up with is, does this particular person call me twice in a six-week cycle, and one of those calls asked me for advice, and I reach out to them four times. So that was the original classification we started with, and that was a strong relationship, and probably still is. Um, and then you, once you've established a strong one, it's easy to, to knock it down to what the weak one is. Never hear from them. Okay, well, that's weak. <laughs> so so uh, that's that was the rudiment. That was the start, and then we started moving it out from there and we integrated. So now we've got a color coding. We now, we're, we now roughly know how weak or strong our relationship staff reach the people. And you have to have everybody involved, obviously, that's on the account to do that because you do it together. And then you start saying, well, now what roles do those people play before I just went through with you? And so that's in another part of the grid system on the spreadsheet. And then it's really, really interesting because what happens then is you go, okay, so let's look at all our greens. Oh my God, we got no greens with anybody who looks after the budget. Mm-hmm. We got no greens with anybody who looks, we don't, we don't have a coach. We got reds for somebody who's a user. You know, so you can see how you can just by looking at it, but this map, it's a bit, forgive the trite um, comparison, it's a bit like, you know, what's your destination and how do you get there on a GPS system? What does the picture look like? And so then what we would do is take a note of all the things that, were problems that I just gave you yeah. examples of. And then, then the real work starts, which is, okay, if that's the current situation, how do we change that? So you you were in charge of marketing, weren't you? Um, at yeah, that point? was 
at that point, I'd moved from marketing into what was called really a, a client service role. But because of the way Coca-Cola worked for McDonald's, we really did a lot of marketing with them and for them in many cases. So my team, I had a marketing director, but my forte was marketing. I had an operations person. I had a guy that looked after orange juice. Obviously, he wasn't that good because we couldn't get into Germany. Just kidding. We did get in. I had an assistant and then I had a, a second person who worked in operations. So that team was a marketing and quality assurance team that looked after McDonald's in 30 countries. Yeah, from mm-hmm. India all the way up to Finland and Germany across to Kazakhstan down you know, through South Africa. Yeah. So having identified this, this sort of new strategic way of looking at relationships, how difficult was it to get that? into the company that you were working in and what difference did it make? Another good question, because it was co- it was coming towards the end of when I moved on, in fact, that we started to really put this together. So Germany was uh, the first country we really started to use it because of that orange juice situation. And it unfolded a lot of other things. And as usual with things like this, it starts with the biggest markets and then you cascade it down because they're the most important so we really only cascaded it down to a few before I left but I then took it to an agency I worked on in Germany for some time I was their general manager for five years and we used it there with uh, Madonna's uh, account in Germany and uh, on a a couple of other countries like Russia and then I, I think I really started to use it when I went into my own consultancy in 2012 where I actually uh, had clients um, such as Intel who used it. So that was a yeah, that was a big in depth. I spent four years with them helping them through that. Yeah. And you've been you worked in and travelled in loads and loads of different countries. Do those roles and the concept hold up across those cultural boundaries? Yes, because people are people at the end of the day. And it doesn't matter where you are, you've still got to have the right relationships. Obviously, it came out of where we looked after one account or one client. But um, I've used it where they were reliant upon 80% of the business was with five clients. You know, when you get to that situation, first of all, you should be looking to widen your base a little bit. But sometimes that's difficult, depending on the business you're in. You're in a very specialist business. There may only be five to 10 businesses that will take your product, right? So you are getting... a it's dangerous you're getting reliance where you're getting a lot of volume and so you're getting dependent well if you're getting dependent you better make damn sure that you've got all your bases covered wide up and down the organization so that you know you don't have a naysayer sitting in a meeting going yeah but yeah because you don't actually see them whereas if you've you've got a, a mapping process by the way the other benefit of the map is not just exposing things but it's in any good uh, account, client, organization, or customer, you need to make sure that you've got all the layers covered. So your CEO should be talking to their CEO. Right. right? And your finance guy probably should have a relationship with their finance guy. Yeah. So it's one of the things we used to do, at, uh, again, working on Coke, was uh, a colleague of mine uh, in London put together. I was based in Vienna, by the way, during most of this time. She was based in London, and she put together what we called the Big Breakfast so she busted the senior guys in from McDonald's on a bus and into the Coca-Cola headquarters, which were, I think they still are, in Hammersmith, on the Hammersmith Island there, and took them up to the fifth floor or something and into the Coke uh, conference room and had uh, breakfast brought in from the local McDonald's. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and she had people paired off. The finance guy was paired off. The, had name tags all the way down the tag. So the finance guy was paired off the finance guy, operations guy. And so they got they were forced to get to know each other. And then after, I think it was like musical chairs, after about 20 minutes, everybody switched and moved, and moved down. And, you know. But it was a great way of kicking off and forcing that deeper, wider relationship. So that, And what happened is a lot of friendships came out of that. You know, somebody who had a finance issue at Coke, went, I wonder if McDonald's had issues with that and then didn't have to expose them in, in themselves internally rang up and said hey Fred you know um have you had this kind of issue because two corporate companies pretty close strategically yeah. it made a lot of sense yeah yeah so it's like corporate speed dating really yes <laughs> what a great way of putting it yeah I'll, hang on I'm gonna write that down <laughs> <laughs> you can have that <laughs> thank you yeah so, so once you've I mean that's that's one great way of narrowing those gaps mm-hmm. but what what other sort of 
things that have you done in your career and in, in your consultancy when when these gaps have been identified to start developing those strategic partnerships? Another good question because you can map it out, but at the end of the day, you've got to actually make it work with human being to human being. Yeah. So um, there's a variety of ways of doing that. I mean, I always was a little bit more. I mean, obviously, everybody does the lunch and the dinner thing and the golf. But but one of the things that um, w- that was taught to me very early on when I was working for Coke out of uh, Shepherd's Bush, were we uh, Beecham Foods in those days were the, the one of the franchisees for Coca-Cola products. And I was charged by Ralph Cooper, who was then the division president. Uh, Peter, I want you to live with those guys. I'm like, okay. Um, so what does that mean? No, I just want you to live with it. Okay, fine. So I'll interpret that. So what he meant was I want you to be an extension of them so that we start to have more of a say as the franchisor of what they do with our products. And this is a real problem in franchising generally, by the way. The tail often ends up wagging the dog because they get so powerful, they start telling the people who actually own the brand name and the rights what they sh- what they should be doing, right? And Coca-Cola has gone through that cycle many times. What he was telling me to do is get, get to know them. So I did what was as now on the news called embedding. I embedded myself. I actually got a desk and my own extension number and lived three days a week in their office. And so I, I would get invited to all sorts of meetings that I wouldn't normally get invited to because, hey, Peter, why don't you come in? And so you, you suddenly become part of their organisation and understand what they're facing. And, and often I believe, you know, when I've done workshops on building relationships, I talk about a triangle, and the triangle's in uh, uh, five phases. It starts, you become, you're a vendor at the very bottom where you just supply, and you work your way up through various stages until you're that favourite term that we always we use now, which is a trusted advisor. But a trusted advisor is, will tell you about things on your business that are, and let's take Coca-Cola as an example, that are nothing necessarily to do with Coca-Cola. We used to advise them often on their marketing because that was an incredible expertise in the Coca-Cola company. So we used our expertise just outside of just soft drinks to help them look at things in a different way. And that's that's when you really start to become very strategic. And, and so one of the ways of doing that was embedding and understanding their business. There's various others. We take them on factory visits. One of the biggest things we did with them, which really built the relationship, and they moved into 20 countries, which I was associated with all of those, before they probably would have done, because we took them there and introduced them to people, because we'd already been there. The bottling system has been around for ions, right? And so we already had an infrastructure and we knew the politics. We, We lent McDonald's Russia sugar because they ran out, because Russia back in... The 90s wasn't it wasn't exactly letting you import easily, and so they were running out. So we we lent them some sugar. We did all sorts of things that were way outside the norm, and and it became as a result it became very much a strategic partnership. But it was built on those relationships, on making you know because that it doesn't happen just because you let's have a strategic relationship with McDonald's. It doesn't happen that way. It's it's got to be done person by person. So that, this is the thing, because there are so many platitudes about human to human and, you know, people by people. But often it's a surface lip service to it rather than doing the work, A, to sort of strategically map it out, which is what you're suggesting people do, but then putting in the graft to, to build those connections and deepen well, those relationships. And there's two things that come to mind as a result of you just saying that what one is that you have to be genuine about the relationships you know otherwise yeah, people are not stupid they, they see through it straight away but the second thing is it occurred to me i didn't finish off the story of what we did okay so we mapped out what the situation was and what we needed to do about it to become strategic a lot of people can get there but it's the next piece that's really important and the next piece is okay so what are we going to do about it? what are the goals like me, you've probably seen a, a zillion business plans. I have not seen any business plans except ours that involved relationships, that involved how you're actually going to work with people that actually will make a difference to what you're trying to do. So our business plans, uh, had a, a, it instigated this relationship piece. And the relationship piece was not just the map. But it was, okay, here's our goals, our quarterly goals. Now, we had that ratio as red and we understood he looks after budget. 
Our goal is to move that to yellow between now January and March. So we go come up with these goals, which we'd have to make sure we're, were realistic because when you're trying to move relationships, you're talking about building trust and respect. That doesn't happen overnight. You know, that's got to be worked at. And it's as I said earlier, it's got to be genuine. So the second part of that was, okay, so what are the key initiatives going to be to achieve that? And so what I saw with some of my countries was I'll have lunch with Fred every other week. You know, I'll take him out on the golf course. I'm like, yeah, that's good. Fine. A, you should be doing that anyway. <laughs> but B, what are you going to do to really – because that isn't going to move the needle. What are you going to do? Let's get creative about this. So we came up with things like, well, has he ever seen a factory? Has he ever seen a plant? Why don't we organise a plant visit for those guys to come to Coke and see how we – and then, by the way, why don't we go to their place? And so you see where this is going. You start to go a little bit differently than the norm. Yeah, you may still do the lunches, but is that really going to move the needle? No. But things like factory visits or sitting in somebody's office. I mean, when I, years, years later, I'm moving to, let's see, 2008, I moved to Chicago from Germany. And within three months, uh, it was like, here we go again. Uh, I was given an office at McDonald's Global Headquarters. I was the only agency that had an office. Why? Because the guy, one of the, the corporate, the VP for corporate marketing, who I knew really well, and he'd gone up the organization. I, 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 I elevated to VP within the Coca-Cola. He, he elevated to um, the CMO for Germany, then took over their sponsorship, the Olympic sponsorship. And so he went up through the ranks and I kind of went up with him in my organization. He's like, I need Peter in here because he's the only guy you've got at the agency who understands the global. And I'm, I'm global. And you've only got people who really understand the US. I need him here so he can help educate my people about how the world works outside the US. We sit here in our ivory tower, literally, in Chicago. And so I, I actually ended up spending a year with my own extension, my own security badge, <laughs> sitting in their corporate headquarters. Another way of building really good relations. Because what happens then is, you see all these other people you would never have access to. And so I made a point of walking the corridor and meeting people that I would never have had the opportunity to do. And when I, they threw me out eventually after a year, not for any bad behaviour, I might add, uh, there was a lot of pressure from other agencies <laughs> because why is he the only one? Right? So um, I took those great relationships with me, right? And so when I'd visit, I visit, they still thought I was at an office there. <laughs> so when you shifted into your own consultancy your own mm. business mm. how useful was your process for establishing no. your business and building you know and getting inroads into into companies that you wanted to, <laughs> to provide services for that's a great one so i was brought into intel by this guy that who had gone on and left mcdonald's by the way and was hired by intel uh, as their uh, assistant cmo I'll make this a shortish story, but we ended up meeting in uh, in Brazil and I was on a trip down in Argentina. He, he'd flown in and he rang me and said, could you meet? I'm bringing together the old gang to help Intel understand how to do sponsorship because I think that's the right route we're going to go. So when I got to see him, he said, well, what have you been doing? I said, well, I've been going around the world, actually, talking to them about uh, relationship mapping. And he goes, what is it? And he he never looked at anything for longer than two seconds. So, but but I, I handed him my iPad and said, just look at those three slides and, you know, there's 25, but I know you won't look at all of them. So, so he's like, that's really interesting. I said, so why would you be interested in that? It's, it's, you know, it's relationship stuff. And he goes, because I'm taking over um, the partner marketing team uh, in the next few weeks, at least, it's, and it's going to be announced. And these guys are great marketeers, but they haven't necessarily got the relationship skills that goes with what they need to do to speak to OEMs and get the, ins the intel inside campaign working as effectively as it should cut a very long story i ended up working with those guys uh for three or four years <laughs> before so to answer your question what i realized as soon as i was really uh, a one-trick pony because he brought me in but if i was going to last any longer <laughs> i better practice what i what i preached which is i better widen and go deeper in the organization to survive and really bring value and understand what the heck else was going on. And that's what I did. I practiced what I preached. I, I went deeper and wider in the organization, come, you know, had some really good friends who helped go out for a couple of pints and understand their business and some of the areas that I could probably help with, which were over and above what I was doing. 
Yeah. So it's helped, so it's me. It's helped of, me a great deal. So you, that was a sort of foot in the door. And then through, you know, through walking the talk, you found other areas that your experience and skill set could help mm. them. Yeah, I, I think probably the, the, the work would have lasted normally a year to 18 months. And I ended up, as I said earlier, four years in there. And it's because I extended what I did uh, into some promotional work, which I'd got experience in, some of my marketing expertise. And so, yeah, um, but that wouldn't have come if I hadn't taken the time. And I actually did map them and went, okay. So where's the user? Well, no, it's Johan, who's the guy we're talking about, but who else is buying my what I'm doing and will benefit from it? Who's a potential gatekeeper? And there were a couple of those. Um, and then, you know, who's the person that's holding the purse strings about the money? Because they had a travel budget freeze at one point. And I'm like, well, 2010, we weren't really into Zooming then. <laughs> so I relied a lot on being physically traveling from then Chicago to the West Coast. I learned uh, quite early on in my HR career that you need to make friends with the finance director if you want to get anything, get paid. anything through. Um, <laughs> exactly that. So do you think that this, the relationship mapping and the, and the whole sort of process that you encourage people to, to undertake is as relevant for small businesses as it is for larger ones? I think it's as salient for both. All right now, I've tended to work in that corporate space, or at least did. I do a little bit of both of what I currently do now. I'm working with leadership groups, and not some of its relationships, but a lot of it's much more on uh, something called EOS Traction, which is is a uh, system tool process that we help companies through smaller companies between seven or eight million up to about two hundred million, and it's it puts in processes and tools for leadership teams. The relationship stuff, I and the reason. One of the reasons I've been working more on that is because I found that the smaller companies, although they need it, they don't want to invest the time in it and the resources. And in fact, it's a shame because they need it more than most because most of the smaller companies are really reliant upon just a few, you know, the scenario we, we, I described earlier, right, where they're reliant on four or five customers simply because of the work they're in. Uh, Minnesota's got a very high manufacturing. It's got one of the highest per capita of small companies in manufacturing in the US. I think there's something like 460,000 companies in that sweet spot I described earlier that are also manufacturing a lot of family businesses there too. Although, so to answer your question, yes, it's important for both. I find it more difficult to convince the smaller companies and those are resources they need to spend time and energy on to retain those clients rather than the legal leaky barrel syndrome where they they bring clients in and they you know they're losing almost at the same rate the whole principle and what this enables you to do is take advantage of that well-known business truth that it's easier to sell to an existing client absolutely than it is to go and get a new client this is what i was taught you know very early on but it proved even more so when I worked on the McDonald's business. So we bought, you may not know this, but Coca-Cola is one of the biggest coffee producers in the world. The background is out of the Japan business where we used to make them and everything's, everything's in a vending machine out of a can in Japan, as you probably know. And so our coffee business in cans through vending machines is huge. And so as a result, we got into the coffee business big time. And so what Coca-Cola have done now is go deeper, wider with accounts like McDonald's. And uh, although it's not their chosen coffee they've put coffee attributes into things the flavored drinks that um that you got the beverage base would come from coca-cola and most people wouldn't know it so although you just saw coke that you could buy a lot of other products were being used because coke realized go deeper wider so um have you got i mean we've talked about mapping for, for a small business that wants to start doing this what are sort of three tips that you can give them to get started? I mean, obviously, we're going to talk about your book, and one tip would be buy the book and find out more about the, the ins and outs of it. But, but on this podcast, three things that they can start with to begin looking at this and bringing it into play in their own businesses. It's funny you say that because I, I was working full-time with a business uh, four years ago as VP of sales, and I brought it in. They were about 15 or $20 million company. It was that company that was reliant upon five clients, you know, uh, it was 80% of the business, which was shocking in one respect, and I started work on that. But it meant that they didn't have any account plans. What I did was 
is the first thing you've got to do is you've got to realize how much of your business is in how many hands. Understand who you're talking to and who, more importantly, who you might not be talking to that has an influence on what you do. Having done that, next step is what are you going to do about it? Because I can assure you right now, there will be stuff that is not being taken care of, right? And so that's the second step. Part of that second step is put it into your CRM because although you can't put my spreadsheet in the CRM, you can tag and you can use CRM systems to make sure you, so you don't have things in different places, right? And then the third element would be, what are you going to set now as goals to tidy that up? And what are you going to do? What's your action plan on a quarterly basis for the next year to be adjusted and reviewed every quarterly to make sure you do move the needle on those relationships? And is there in your book, I mean, you described you know, you sort of defined some of those characteristics of mm. relationships at those different traffic light stages because it's mm. important to have the goal and to have the initiative but also to have that sort of performance indicator to know yeah. that you're on track. Is, mm-hmm. is that something that people should think about as well? How do we know we're yes. winning, I guess? Yeah, so absolutely. So the quarterly review is the, is one of the most important parts of the six-step process, which is the last one, which is tracking whether you're actually – so you, you're held accountable. Mm-hmm. The only way things get done is if you're held accountable. We all know that. The old, yeah. you know, if I can't do the gym on my own, I'm going to get a gym buddy, you know, but have somebody that holds you accountable. And so it's the same thing with this. You have to look at whether you're making progress. And if not, then what are the underlying reasons for why you're not making progress? Yeah. Otherwise, you just do this as a one-off exercise. You're not going to you're not going to move the needle on it at all. So, one of the things I wanted to float past you was in in the world of online marketing, direct marketing that I operate in. We have a concept which you might have come across in your world called Dream One Hundred, and it's about identifying hundred people that could make a difference to your business. So, this would be new. Mm. new accounts or new customers, which kind of fits into what you're talking about as well. Do you think it's possible to apply the same process to targets for your business, for, for new business? Do you think that that would also work? I think it might. If, if yeah, you... I think so too. I've not heard of Dream 100. I thought you were talking of something else, which is called Dream Manager, which is a totally different concept. But um, So I haven't heard of Dream 100. But Yes, I would, because ultimately what you're trying to do is the, the, the subjectivity has to go out of it somewhere along the lines and be very objective. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's one of the problems most people have around relationships. It's it, they, they can't get objective about it. It's like, do you have a good relationship with uh, Jack? Yeah, we, we get, we're great buddies. Right? Well, on a scale of one to 100, where is that? Oh, it's about 95. Why? How? How do you evaluate that? Back to, does he ring you every four weeks, you know, ask you about you? So, yes, you could do it, I think. You could apply that because it's very objective. I'm eating my own dog food, as they say over here at the moment, because I'm selecting uh, the the next 50 influencers that I've got to work with. Because I haven't practiced what I preached the last year, probably, and I'm like, ooh, wait a minute. You know, you're doing the transactional relationship thing yourself. Yes. Aren't you doing what you've been telling other people to do and sometimes we we're terrible at taking our own advice right absolutely so it is it is in a sense for new business as well completely valid to identify who would be some strategic targets for your business to go after or if you're a speaker organizations that you want to speak in yeah. and then begin sort of doing the work to research them and map those roles and then try and try and develop those strategic relationships with those people so that you've got a, an in into the business. Exactly. So one of the things we're doing, um, I've got a marketing plan now, which uh, I've got my 15 top influencers. Those are people who will get me to the kind of businesses that I've targeted if I can't get to the directly to the business owner, because often you can't, it's very difficult to reach the business owner, and then that's deliberate by them. <laughs> so who are the influencers that will say, by the way, I met someone the other day, and he really knows his stuff. I think you should meet him. So those are my top 15, and then I have another 
15. Uh, so, sorry, on top of that, I go down to 40. But what I'm doing now is those top 15, how often are you going to pull them without being ridiculous, mm. right? So once a week is probably not a good idea. And then what value you're going to bring to them. And then, so I've started from the relationship part. I'm working back with how I add value. So how do I, you know, what lead magnet am I going to use to, to reinforce value for them? And But it starts not from the lead magnet. It starts from who the person is that I should be talking to and working back that way. Perfect. That's really, that's really helpful. Cool. And how does speaking fit into your business today, Peter? I wish it fitted in more. <laughs> no, I'm serious. It's something I really enjoy doing. Um, I have done a bit of it. I, I haven't been paid for it, but I've done a lot of event type. Yesterday, I, I would call that speaking. I moderated a panel oh, at something yes. called the Gears and Gadgets, and we had four panelists who I briefed and uh, and then modulated that. And I really enjoy it because is I, I try and not make it stilted. It's not like asking a question. You know, it's, it's pretty much what you'll do. It's leverage off the next thing, you know, make it pertinent, make it interesting. Um, I see that with speaking as well, because I think with speaking, you get to you get to Q&A at the end and you, you can really feel what an audience thinks about, what they're tapped into, what they're not tapped into, and you can learn from it. It's a great way of building awareness. And one of the reasons I wrote my book was to get speaking assignments People like to know that you've got some content. Yes. They can't just trust you have. So if you've got, if you've written a book, you've obviously got content. And mm. so um, if at the very worst scenario, you actually construct something and put it together and talk about something. So I think that helped a lot. It's something that I've now decided I'm going to spend a bit more time on than I have in the past. Cool. I was going to say, I didn't write the book to make money because, you know, I'm certainly not the New York bestseller. It was written to package everything and get speaking assignments yeah fantastic Sorry. yeah what is the title of the book and where can people get yeah. that book well, it's on amazon it's available worldwide thanks to amazon it's called the relationship roadmap i think i published it december 2014 and it really goes through what we've just been going through which is you know it starts off with personal stories of how i got into why relationships were important and then um it goes into the, my six-step process if you like of methodically and objectively choosing why first and then how you should uh, uh, form good strategic relationships yeah cool so then get it on amazon and i'll put a link in the show notes to the book on amazon so that's brilliant okay now before we go into more details about how people can find you and work with you i wanted to ask you a few standard questions that i ask all my guests so um what's speaking done for you first question i i think a couple of things. It's it's given another aspect to my platform, yeah. which I didn't have before. Uh, it's given, and it's therefore it's given me awareness. It's actually a, a hidden little thing. Is because you have to because you're speaking in front of people, you prep a lot. Yeah, and if you don't, you you'll fail at speaking because because you don't want to be standing there reading it. Right. So the, what you're doing is really understanding a subject. I'm really becoming much more knowledgeable than you probably thought, uh, you probably thought you were to begin with, but you become even more so. And you become really good on your feet at being able to describe and, and go through what you do. And I think the third thing is it has helped me, it sounds like a funny one, but out of left field, it's made me a much better facilitator yeah. because of this whole presence you have to have, number one, number two, fielding questions. And so, and that's only part of facilitating. I understand that, but it's certainly helped in one, you know, several aspects of it. Yeah. Cool. And on your speaking journey so far, have there been any um, bad gigs that you're like, oh no, that was that was bad? I haven't. No, I haven't had any so far. No, that's good. I think I could have done things better. But I've never had any, you know, real huge failures or anything. Yeah. No stinkers so far. Good. Well, oh, yeah. I only ask that question of my guests because what I like to spotlight is that all of us have had bad gigs or we will have bad gigs and don't let that stop you get back on the horse. So that's good. Not everyone has them, you know, and as you say, I get the impression that you're a guy that preps 
very well for things yeah. and that's part of the secret to speaking success is I, yeah i probably over prep but that's probably well i don't think you know over prep but you know what i mean I, yeah. I go you know when i was moderating yesterday i had stuff up on the ipad i had three hard copies ready just in case and you know and i'd read through the material a dozen times in the morning fear of failure drives you to do that <laughs> yeah. yeah it's true it's true Cool. Okay. Now, could you tell me the name of a book that's had most impact on your life and why? Simon Sinek, uh, The Why. I didn't know that was coming. So um, that was straight off the top of my head. I've discovered Sinek. Um, I sometimes describe him as his name should be spelled C-Y-N-I-C. But, um, he's taught me a lot of things, but why was really a huge impact for me because I've, I've been in the what and how. Mm. Never thought about why I do things. And um, so it's helped in my personal life as well as my business. It's helped me understand more about why I do things. Uh, and I think um, it's not, it's like everything that's revelationary, if you like. It's not that amazing. It's just fairly simple, but he just gets you to think in a different way. And so that's, that's had an, an impact on both my personal and business. Not many books I read have a, a, as much effect on my, me personally. Yeah. Cool. That's great. Thank you. Um, what's the best bit of business advice that you've had and why? Uh, <laughs> I, okay. This is, this is a very different. I was once told to be much more of an ambassador. And it was because I was working out in the field on the McDonald's business. I was on my own. I just I hadn't built up a team at that stage. And so I had to do everything myself. And he said, I get that. And you're very good at it. But if you're going to rise up through the ranks and become a VP, you've also got to, if you've got to be able to delegate. And even if they don't report directly to you, find people you can delegate stuff to so that you are actually the uh, conductor of the orchestra rather than being the individual instruments yourself. And I don't think he used that expression, but now I think about it, he could have done, um, <laughs> or that analogy. And so, yeah, that was probably the best advice I had because um, it made me change my approach somewhat. We always used to tell people when I was in HR, if you uh, if you haven't got any to, anyone to replace you, they can't promote you, basically. No, that's true. Yeah. yeah that's right. Excellent. Okay, last one. If you can have any mentor, and they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional who would you choose and why oh gosh probably john maxwell he was an amazing leader um and it'll be a toss-up between him and drucker actually Peter oh, drucker, okay. because um both incredibly good at what they did provided tremendous advice and basically produced they weren't textbooks well drucker was close to it but you know produced the books that you can constantly go back and reference so, yeah, those would be the two. And, and the whys, they've changed my thinking in a number of ways. I think Cynic's the most recent one, you know, um, and so he came to mind straight away, but for a different reason. Those two are much more well-rounded on a number of areas, uh, particularly Maxwell leadership, yeah. Cool, that's brilliant. Well, listen, Peter, thank you so much for sharing about the process and relationships and and your background and I'm sure that's going to give people a lot of food for thought so if they do want to either get you involved in speaking well you know I guess over zoom or when things go back to some sort of level of normality or if they want to find out more about you consulting for them where's the best place for them to go well they can find me on LinkedIn uh, under Peter M. Beaumont that's pretty easy Uh, actually do a google search on me they'll find me pretty quickly but um my email address is peter.beaumont at connection c-o-n-n-x-n.net that's the and, quickest way of reaching me yeah. and that's and that's the name of the companies you have a company website don't you which I is do. they can go to connection.net yeah and find me on there and uh, yeah smashing yeah. well i'll put a link to all of those things thank in you. the show notes so thank you so much for for coming on the show and um, I'm sure our paths will cross again in the future. I, I hope so. I've been listening to some of your material and it's really excellent. So. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, lots to think about there. I do like to be able to measure things and I, I've never seen a way to measure the efficacy of business relationships before. If you found that useful and you want to find out more, then do check out Peter's book, and connect with him on LinkedIn. Well, smashing, I've just got three things to say before I head off. 
first one is this. If you are a leader, then I want you to consider this question. What message does your community need to hear right now to help them move forward in these challenging times? It could be a story or a joke or something more serious. I just want you to see what comes up when you ponder that question. After I pondered that question, I shared a message and story with my community in the Speaking Club Facebook group about looking for ways to thrive and not just survive at the moment. And I hope it helped them. And I'm sure whatever you would share with your community will also help them too. But just think about what do your people need right now? Okay, second If you've not subscribed to the podcast, then make sure you do as we've got some more fab shows coming up. And finally, if you enjoy The Speaking Club, then do me a big favour and leave a rating or review for the show at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC. That's ratethispodcast.com slash TSC. Thank you again so much for joining me. I know it's, it's mad out there. But I do appreciate you choosing the speaking club and having a listen to this show. I'll be back next week. And in the meantime, don't forget to go out and grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. If you want to be more memorable and engaging when you talk, then you need to share more stories. Stories can help you better connect with your audience and their problems and get them leaning in more powerfully than anything else. And short, snackable stories are great to use in pitches, Facebook Lives, podcasts, videos, keynotes, webinars, blogs, in fact, everywhere to share your message and grow your business. The trouble is that finding your snackable stories and confidently sharing them can feel like a struggle. And that struggle can slow you down or stop you in your tracks. But that's where my free snackable story challenge comes in. Over the course of just five days, I'm going to give you resources, training and coaching to help you find your authentic personal stories to share and build your skills and confidence in sharing them. Not only that, but the challenge will guide you towards a tangible result at the end and assets for you to use going forward. The next challenge is starting soon. So to grab your space, go to saraharcher.co.uk slash challenge right now.